Today is June 15, 1990. My name is Sister Prince, and I'm interviewing Nikki Nakano-Hara for the archives of the Missouri Historical Society. Nikki, you've got some papers there. Yeah, this is um, a Sansei study that's being done by a Dr. Nagata in Massachusetts, and we got the first letter in 87. And what she's doing is getting the perceptions and opinions on the Sansei generation on camps and their family situations and post-camp. post, post camp. And it was a very detailed uh, questionnaire. And then um, in 88, she gave us a sort of a summary of uh, some of the results that she had. Oh, I'd like to. I'd like to see that. Oh, tell a tell, for the sake of the tape, please um, identify what Sansei is. Sansei is third generation Japanese Americans. Okay. And just recently, and the referral to the internment camps was. Explain the internment camp. The internment camps were the camps when the Japanese Americans were all evacuated from the West Coast area, bound for Harvard. Okay, in 1941. And uh, she just recently, in May, sent out another follow-up survey, which we, uh, which I sent to. So this, this, and you being the daughter, the sister, and the wife of people who were in internment camps. Now, you're not the mother of you. Oh, no. No. Okay. Your parents were in internment camp. Your brother was born in internment camp. No, he wasn't born in the internment camp. He wasn't? No, he was, went in when he was three. He went in when he was three, okay. And, um, you were born in St. Louis? Yeah. Okay. Um, and John, your husband, was in an internment camp. So, of everyone in your family, except for your children, of course, um, you were surrounded by. Um, may I ask how it affected your growing up? I don't, in retrospect, I don't think it had a lot of effects because my father never talked about it. So I really wasn't aware of this whole camp situation until really after I was married because there wasn't much in, there wasn't anything in the history books at school. So I never learned anything at school on this. And if people in the Japanese American organization talked about it, I was probably too young to pay any attention to it. But I don't think they really did much talking about it until the 70s late 70s. Mm -hmm. And then how did that, why do you think they began to talk about it in the late 70s? Well, that's when the redress uh, movement started to get, gather some steam. And the uh, President Carter set up the uh, Federal Commission to study the relocation uh, episode. And at that time, my husband started to get involved in the Japanese American Citizens League. And so, his, he started to talk about his own experiences. And slowly I started to learn more and more people were able to talk about it more openly. How'd you feel about beginning to hear 
these kind of things. It was strange. I, I was I was impressed mostly by the quietness of the whole episode. That they could go through an experience like that and not have any riots or a lot of violence, which I think today we're not going to put up with that. But you can understand the period back then, which John stresses in his lectures, is that in the 40s, authority was respected, and Japanese Americans especially were very respectful of authority. And so if the government of the United States says that you have to go into camps because we think such and such, you don't question it, you just do it. So that's one point that kind of stands out. Did you then go back to your father and or did you feel free to talk to him or ask him about it, or were you hesitant? In a, just in general, we just didn't sit down specifically and talk about it, you know, in passing a conversation. We would just mention, he would mention a few things that other people were talking about. Um, growing up here, um, did you wonder where your grandparents were, or anybody else's grandparents? Yes, because uh, we grew up in St. Louis and we had no relatives here. It was just my mother, father, and my brother. We didn't have any brothers and sisters. They were all in California or other parts of the country. So I did miss out on family occasions this Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that. And you had that yearning to have that. You had what? You had that yearning to have sort of a family unit around those times. But it, uh, we had the Japanese American Citizens League group, which we were active in. So that was which was began to be like family. Mm -hmm. Other people right. were they in similar circumstances, Nikki? Um, other people who had moved here in the same way that you all had after the camps, camp experience. Did they also have a small family and, and not extended family, no grandparents? And things like that? No, other people had. There were, they were all like, like we were. Mm -hmm. There were different situations. Okay, so um, where, where did you go to school? We lived in the city, and I went to Emerson Elementary in Hempstead. And I stayed there to my junior high years, and then we moved to University City where I completed my junior high, high school, University City High School. And you had all kinds of friends, and well, we, I specifically remember when I was in fourth grade, still in the city, that's when the blacks first were integrated. Mm -hmm. And that period sort of stands out. And never had any problems with that. And I remember in sixth grade, I was bused to a black school, which, you know, looking back, seems like funny that we were bused there. But never had any problems with, with that. Did you ever, did you ever feel any racism or any prejudice in your own? Well, they're just the isolated instance when kids would tease you by being mm -hmm. Chinese, Japanese, that's their eyes, mm -hmm. but nothing malicious. Mm -hmm. So except for personal things like your, when your mom was ill, mm -hmm. um, 
Was St. Louis a, a good place to okay. Yes, wonderful. It's laid back, it's quiet, mm -hmm. and people are really nice. And then came John. When I was about 19, I had met him. My father knew him first, because mm -hmm. he golfed with him. Mm -hmm. And we had a friend in common that we both used to babysit for her children. And she was always matchmaking each of us up. So she was delighted when she got us together with mm -hmm. the set of worked out. So I got married when I was 19. Did you have a, what, what part of the Japanese heritage showed up in your upbringing? What was, what was there in, was there anything in your home? Was there anything uh, in your religion? We weren't church-going family, so I didn't have that influence as much. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have a lot of Japanese books or artifacts around the home. They didn't speak Japanese. She didn't cook that much Japanese food, mm -hmm. so I didn't have a lot of exposure to the culture, mm -hmm. only through the Japanese-American citizens. And you'd have your potlucks where they would serve traditional foods, and they'd have little dance festivals where you would dress up in the kimonos and the children mm -hmm. and you were dancing and origami. So that's where I got all my exposure from. Mm -hmm. So you, you truly were a, um, an American as apple pie and this was just, you know, put on. Mm -hmm. Like you're dressing up for Halloween, it's just something different. Mm -hmm. But I, it never became ingrained that was that's part of my heritage until mm -hmm. I was an adult. It really wasn't? No. I think that's that's such an important factor for people to realize that it's um, it stands it stands on its own. And it, um, well, I know that some people you interviewed you asked them about the words "own" and "giddy" things like that, and those are words I just learned since you know of late. And I, those are qualities which I, I think I have inherited unknowingly from my parents. How did you learn about them of late? Why would it those were always traits I had, but I really didn't know that they were indigenous to Japanese American heritage. But but what made them? What what made the Japanese words? That's O N, correct? Mm -hmm. And G I R A. I think so. Okay. Um, what made those words become known to you? Mostly through word? John's influence, because his background is, he's a second generation Nisei. Mm -hmm. and so he has a much more uh, closeness to the heritage, cultural heritage, and since he was in camp, he had a lot more experience. Excuse me. Um, would you explain what those words mean? Well, on believe meant you have a, an inner inner strength and giddy is means I believe which you have honor, you bring honor to your family and to your parents and unknowingly those are things that I had always done when I was growing up. That's pretty much what your dad said, mm -hmm. you know, that he really wasn't aware of them himself. But felt that 
they had been passed on to him. It's gratifying to see that my own daughters have gotten involved also mm -hmm. without us having consciously passed on. Uh, do your children, do they feel, what do they feel about their heritage? Well, they've had more exposure at an earlier age than I did, so they're more aware of their their background. And uh, they appreciate the good parts of it. You know, they like being sort of distinctive and they have uh, heritage. And, um, but my oldest daughter, she doesn't understand actually why we would get so concerned about always being labeled as foreigners. She says she runs into this situation all the time where people ask me, you know, how long have you been here? And your English is very good. And she just explains to them, I was born here in the United States. She doesn't get upset about it. And we really don't get upset, but we sort of get tired of, of that same attitude. And uh, so she, we make her aware that you have to educate people. I wonder why, th what the difference is between the two generations, or if it is just your daughter, or just the way you raised her to be very easy in that respect? Mm. Well, I was, my childhood was so easy going and laid back, and I think I passed that along, and John's infused a little bit of his more awareness mm -hmm. of consciousness to the kids. He feels very strong. should be a certain way, I think. In what respect? Oh, he wants things clearly understood about how he feels about things. Yeah, he, he's very upfront with everybody. Mm -hmm. That's one of his characteristics. He's very frank. He doesn't beat around the bush, which is a typical, stereotypical attribute of Japanese Americans when they sort of sneak around not sneak around, but you don't really come right to the point right away. You have to sort of build up to it. But he's, he thinks that's an influence from the Jewish family through his high school years. That they taught him to be outspoken, to speak your mind, be clear in your thoughts. And he was really grateful for that exposure. And I think that's really made a difference for him. But he does it in a very gentle way. Not always. <laughs> I, I like to think that's my influence, but. I don't want to take too much credit. Well, it may be. Um, tell me, now let's go back to this. Um, How did you feel making this out? Was this well, this survey, I felt mm -hmm. terribly inadequate because of the questions they asked. And I was surprised about how little I actually knew about the camps and the history. Well, this is this is probably everything that we would want in uh, in an interview. These questions. Um, in fact, I think I'll your attitudes toward how you were raised. So the first one is is what you knew, mm -hmm. and this when you were told. The second one gets more into your basic feelings about 
felt about the internment and how you think your life is affected. And a lot of questions on have has this feeling transcended into your uh, feelings about law, legal? Mm -hmm. Do you feel law is just? Do you feel right to always be found innocent in courts? I mean, they've been through several questions like that, like we're going to have a slanted uh, opinion about the legal system because mm -hmm. of our experience. Mm -hmm. But I'm an optimist at heart. I always be attached to people innocent that you'll really comments. I know there are circumstances where you don't, but I always believe it. In spite of what happened? Oh, yeah. You feel that? Sure. Well, you know, I asked so many people, um, why do you love this country so, if it treated you so badly? And, um, it's all you know, it's all you have. And we, I have traveled a little bit. This is July 11, 1990, and uh, Nikki Hara and Sister Prince are going to talk about the Sansei Research Project. Okay. Um, you gave me this to look over, and I did. And um, this was given out to all Sansei, am I pronouncing it correctly? Sansei. Um, that's third generation Japanese American, except for those who had been in the camps. Is that correct? Um, I don't think so. Was also there was one group that was left out. Yourself in turn. No, you're right. Well, maybe we'll come across it. It seemed to me that there was one group that was not asked, but all right. Um, okay, your parents were in turn, your husband was interned as a child. Um, and I'll just begin with how do you think that affected your life? Well, by my parents, I, I don't recall any differences in the way they raised me or anything like that compared to other families. I don't think they had a, a hang-up about government or their rights being taken away. They just never made that an issue. I never, they never discussed it. But it's only after I married John and this redress issue became more out and open. Mm -hmm that I could sort of see how his life was affected by camp, where it affects our lives and our children. How is that? Well, he went into camp when he was nine years old. Mm -hmm. And in, in that three or four year period, his whole family disintegrated. Their bond just fell apart because of the situation the camp presented. And he was on his own, essentially, after the war, since he was 14 years old. So he didn't have, growing up in his, in his teen years, or you know, family life, a traditional family life mm -hmm. after that period. 
and he was on his own. He had to work on his own, earn his own money. So he has an um, um, impression of today's children as having it too easy because they don't have to go out. They don't have this work ethic, which he you know, feels very strongly about. And they have too much. There's just too many choices. Discipline is not harsh. You know, that's one of the conversations we've usually had about discipline and how much you, know, you do for the children. And so, in other words, you're not, he feels that you don't discipline enough? I was too easy. Too easy. And he would like to have been a little bit sterner. Mm -hmm. Was he? He tried to, but he'd always get an argument from me, so then he would, in order to keep peace in the family, we'd sort of compromise and, mm -hmm. and he wouldn't push it as much. Well, for instance, if, the, if one of your children stayed out too late or didn't call when they were supposed to, something well, we On those type of things, we both felt the same. You know, they had a certain responsibility mm -hmm. and obligation to the family to be responsible in that sense. But well, give, what I'm looking for is, is where he would be coming from on an issue and where you would be coming from. What would be the extremes? Well, if the kids wanted something, Mm -hmm. you know, his first impression is that you should go out and work and earn the money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And th this is when they're small, and I always felt that that was a little too severe. What is small? When they're eight or nine years old, mm -hmm. you know, before they could actually go out and earn money. I think, uh, in retrospect, you, know, you probably could have enforced a little bit more on the children that if you want something you should earn it, but I was a little bit lenient in that sense. Now, so you were more lenient? I was more and, lenient. All right, and you usually worn out? Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. And where would he get his feeling, where would he get his way, where would he get his, his feelings? When did you allow that to come across? Well, like with piano, the children started when they were five. And um, I was all for it as long as they were interested and kept up that, you know, we both were very supportive of that. But when they came into junior high school and senior high school, they had a lot of other activities and uh, they didn't have as much time or interest in piano. And so when they said they wanted to quit, you know, I was all for it because I had to drive them every week and they complained every week about going. So I was all ready for them to quit, but when he heard that they were going to quit, that's, he really put his foot down. He says, you're going to continue for at least three more years. Because he felt that you have to have a commitment in something like this because it teaches you just not piano, but discipline and all these other kind of virtues that he really uh, harped on a lot. So they went two more years beyond that point when they first brought it up, they're complaining every single week. But um, did they complain just to you or did they complain they to him? They never complained to him because you know, he's not sympathetic in hearing complaints. You know, it's either you do it or you don't. And so he knew, they knew he wouldn't give in, so they just mm -hmm. did it. So I would hear all this. So um, they did quit two years later, both of them. And he was disappointed, but mm -hmm. By then, he sort of compromised. He got a little bit more time out of them. And to this day, they now they appreciated us pushing them. Mm -hmm. And he's gratified for that mm -hmm. because they now have a love for piano and 
it's a relaxing uh, outlet for us. And where did your leniency come from? I mean, how did that? Well, my parents were very lenient. There were no restrictions or regulations. I was a very easy child, I think, because I never gave them any trouble or cause to be worried or anything. So I think the combination, I grew up with very loose uh, barriers. And so I guess that reflected the way I wanted to raise my kids. It didn't make you feel concerned that you should give them a little stronger? No, because I didn't think I turned out that badly. So I figured mm -hmm. if you give them a little leeway, they have to make some choices. It, instead of you plotting out every every section of the way, you know, I think John tended to want to direct them a little more than I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, because he grew up in such a harsh atmosphere where learning by um, having to do something or being without something to him was a better lesson than just giving it to you. And I think you can have arguments either way on that. He tended, I thought, to go on an extreme a work ethic. You should go out and pick peaches for 10 hours a day during the summer every day, you know, to really appreciate money and things like that. And you can't have your kids do that today. I mean, it's just not possible. But it's that kind of feeling that he had that they didn't have an appreciation for what they had, which is probably true. But, you know, you live in the suburbs, you know, where, how are you going to discern your children to have that? Atmosphere. Um, how did he motivate them? Well, he was very good at um, setting example because he was very well read. He, we always had lots of books around the house, and we encouraged them to read at a very early age. And I think that was one of the best things that we agreed on to read to them early and encourage them to go to libraries. And when you have reading, that's just your foundation for everything else. So we agreed on that very early. And I think uh, that helped because we, we set examples in that sense. Mm -hmm. He was a very conscientious worker, and I think the kids picked that up early. You know, he wasn't one to try to get away with anything or make his job easier by flipping off or something. He's very conscientious. Um, now, as far as the way your parent, why do you think that your parents were as lenient with you? Um, from reading through that, I get a, uh, a feel um, that you were not, they were not motivating. No. That there were, that there were not a lot of books in your home. Yeah. You tell me about it. Well, it was, it was a typical childhood up until nine, and that's when my mother got ill. And so after that, it was um, a shifting of, I guess, my affection or uh, dependency onto my father rather than my mother, because he took over everything. And he had a had to raise me and you know, pick out my clothes and help me with school. All the things that you typically would do with your mother, I, I didn't have that 
closeness. And so all the years we grew up, I was always closer to my father than I was to my mother. And I think because of the situation of her illness, they were le more lenient with me because I had to assume more responsibilities. And so I don't think they harped on, on things as much as with other kids. What, what, uh, what responsibilities did you assume? Well, I had to learn to cook. Not well, but I started to do that, take care of the house. And you had to be more responsible for yourself. You had to get yourself ready in the morning and pack your own lunch, get yourself off to school, come home, and, you know, things like that. But it never seemed like a big, big deal at that time. It was just another transition that you went through. And um, your mother was unable to care for you at nine, and it didn't seem like a big deal or a big transition? Well, she was in the hospital that first time for one year. And she was paralyzed? She was paralyzed from neck down. And the outstanding thing I remember about that period is just driving to the hospital every single night. Take my books with me and do my studies while we were at the hospital for about an hour, hour and a half, and come home. I mean, that was every, almost every single night we did that for a year. Your brother too? He didn't go all the time, but it was my, me and my father. He's very supportive. Uh, and then so she came home. Mm -hmm. And who, who cared for her when she went she to did, school? She did everything herself. Uh, she took over cooking. How she, you said she was paralyzed from the Well, by the, after a year, the paralysis had moved down to her waist. Oh, okay. So then she took some therapy, and she, she got around in a wheelchair, and she handled herself very well for many years. Mm -hmm. and she did all the cooking, and she, but she never, she used to go out in the beginning, and my father would have to lift her in and out of the chair. But toward the end of the year, she uh, got more reclusive and didn't go out at all. Did she withdraw from your teeth? Well, I think, in a sense, she was getting what we think might be early signs of Alzheimer's disease because, you know, she just would read paperback books a lot and watch television. Mm -hmm. And soon, paperback books, she didn't read anything at all and just watch television. That was her outlet. She withdrew. So conversation was just, you know, limited. Mm -hmm. So toward the end, it was, it was a little hard. Now, what age were you then? Well, she died when I was about 40. Mm -hmm. But when you began to mature and somebody needed to tell you what was going on with you and your body and your... No, she never told me that. I learned this from my relatives, my friends. So when I started my menstrual cycle, I was over at my friend's house, and they're the ones who explained the whole thing to me. Uh, nobody sat down and explained sex. I picked that up from my brother's Playboy magazines, which he had under the door. And whatever version you pick up from that, but it's just assimilation. Nobody ever sat me down to say anything. Mm -hmm. So it's a wonder I <laughs> turned out the way I did. But uh, they didn't encourage you in school. My father's main thing was to be popular. Wait, let me go back to popular for a minute. 
Um, why do you think that was so important to him? I mean, all parents would like their children to be well liked, but was there something we're drawing, trying to draw on some sort of camp experience, or what? What you know, trying to see if there's what effect that had, and um, well, I don't know if the camp really had that much bearing. I think basically my father. Well, it, excuse me, Nikki. Maybe not only the camp, but let's think in terms of. Um, um, he was a Nisa, second generation, but whatever, he, however he grew up, just the fact that um, you are what you are and he is your father and what everybody's background is. What, what from his background? Just think in terms of that besides the king. I think basically he was a very people-oriented person mm -hmm. and he liked to be around people, have a good time, and I think he wanted me to have that ability too. And being popular was part of that. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, sort of a, a loner. I only had like two or three good friends mm -hmm. while I was going to school. I was never one to join a lot of things. And he would, you know, make suggestions about doing other activities mm -hmm. that would get me more involved. I was never that linked toward that. So he wanted you to do those things, but it didn't happen. It didn't. Mm -hmm. um, I tell you, why do you feel that you, your student, being a student, sort of dropped off your studies? Well, in junior high school and high school, I just think that my enthusiasm for school just sort of waxed, and uh, I wasn't. I kept B's and C's, but I just wasn't, you know, um, pushing for A's or high academic achievement because college was never discussed. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, other kids are picking up colleges and I'm going to the employment office looking for a job. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed natural. It, I never thought about it. You never thought about I never thought about going not going to college or, you know, not having it discussed. It just seemed like a natural transition just to look for a job. So the money was not there to do it? And it it probably was, would have been a problem, too, but we never thought about it. And you never thought about, well, I'll get a job and work my way through? No, I wasn't that academically, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and your father never? No, he never uh, brought college up. And money, uh, to, for me to earn my own money was not that big of an issue either, but I think I just wanted to get busy and do something. Mm -hmm. So that's why I got a job on it. What was your first job? Um, I was a medical transcriptionist for a children's hospital. Mm -hmm. And I had that for three years until I got married. And now, thank God, you helped us. Alright, well, so when you, met, when you met John, did John talk to you? Uh, was that a, a a brief subject that you talked about his being in camps? Or no, never discussed. Never discussed mm -hmm. it at the beginning. The beginning of your marriage or the beginning of when you met? When we met and uh, of our marriage. Um, we became more involved in the Japanese American Citizens League. And he became more involved. I was always in the group. But he became more involved, and I think that's when the redress issue started to come to the surface, and mm -hmm. he became more 
involved with that, and that's when I first learned about most of them was, was God. Then did you go back to your dad and say, hey? No. I would ask, you know, some questions, but mm -hmm. I didn't expect him to unload the whole story on me. I didn't seek it out. Mm -hmm. Were you, why didn't you seek it out? And why wouldn't you expect him to unload it? Well, I guess that I just didn't think at that time that it was that important to me. You know, everything in my life was sort of traditional in my mind. And I didn't think that this was a big hidden issue that once unfolded would reveal some hidden secret about our family life. I, I never thought it in terms of, I just never put much credence in the whole life. No, not that it would unfold a secret, but that it happened and that you just might want to know about it. Or did you well, I remember did a you couple of times I would ask him some questions about camp. At, at, in the beginning, he, he was very reluctant to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think from that, that first beginning, I just didn't cry any longer because it did seem to bother him to talk about it. So that was more of a reason why maybe you didn't, or was that more of a reason, or what? Well, once I heard about redress, it wasn't a burning desire me to immediately go to my parents and try and get this whole story about mm -hmm. their camp experience. That wasn't an immediate reaction. It's only in passing that when redress would be discussed, I might ask him a question or two about his experience, and he seemed reluctant. Oh, it was that late that mm -hmm. you, you're talking about, not when you were young? Oh, no, I never discussed it when I was young. It was only after I was married. When's the first time that, that you ever heard that there, that there were camps? I think it was when, after we were married, and John had gone to some National Japanese American Citizens Convention, and mm -hmm. at those conventions it was first brought up, and he came back and talked about it. And that's? That's essentially the first time I really had heard about it. And he then started to tell about his experiences. Are you saying that it was never mentioned in your home at all? Well, not that I recall. Not that you recall. No, I don't think it was an issue of discussion at all. Do you think that w when you talk to other people at conventions, Japanese American Citizens League conventions, and I know you just came back from one, um, does this kind of discussion ever come up? Uh, oh, sure, yeah. And do you think that people on the West Coast it, it was more a part of what they talked about? Or well, I think Sansei's in general all say the same thing, that they didn't hear about it from their family when they were going up. Because most of the Niseis who went through the experience didn't talk about it or didn't want to remember it. And so they never talked about it. So it was only in later life that most of us learned about the history. Because it's not in the history books. There's nothing in the history books at all about camps. Do you feel that they were ashamed? I'm sure that was part of it. Is there a possibility that that you don't want to, didn't want to ask him? You said that at first you said that there was nothing about, there were no secrets or you weren't concerned with it. But is there a possibility that um, 
you didn't want to put him in that position? I don't think I was as sensitive to that at that age. I just felt that it's something he didn't want to talk about. And so I was never one to push anything. You know, if I didn't sense that they wanted to talk about anything, I would just shut it off right there, not go any further, and not even think about it. So it wasn't a conscious thought on my mind that he's holding it back because of such and such reasons. It's mm -hmm. just he didn't want to talk about it, so I did push it. And that was the end of it. But with John, it's different. Oh, yeah, he's much more outspoken about it. In the beginning, he didn't want to address the whole issue himself. He felt it was a the other part. Um, so he became, he, yeah, well, how, how does it, I mean, when you get together with friends, um, what issues, do, do the camps come up? Is that discussed? Well, some of the friends that we, we uh, associate with, that's not something they really want to spend a lot of time talking about. Mm -hmm. Because uh, some of them were younger than John, and they don't remember as much, for mm -hmm. one thing. And, and I don't know if it's uh, Asian heritage or you know, personality thing, but we just don't dwell on things like you know, suffering or what we've lost things mm -hmm. like that. But he's more expressive with people who don't know about the experience than when mm -hmm. he wants to relay it to them. He's much more vocal. Well, he does it very well. Um, but at these conventions, do, do you feel, do people talk about it? Well, it's funny, they say when you meet a person of Japanese-American heritage that you don't know, usually the third question that comes out of your mouth is, what camp were you in? Mm -hmm. and, and that opens up a whole door of where they came from, who they knew, who we might know together, and it just like a domino effect you know, after you get to know their name. That seems to be one of the most prevalent questions. That's an ice, a Japanese-American icebreaker. Mm -hmm. like so we, I saw that a lot at the convention, because one of the issues that was discussed was from camp. Uh, there were a couple issues from camp that was discussed. So what were those issues? Well, there's an issue of the no-no boys, and these were some men in camp who refused to join the military uh, when they were drafted. And this was their way of protesting their rights being deprived. And at that time, the leaders of the Japanese American Citizens League urged all young men who were called up for the draft to join to show and prove their patriotism and loyalty. Mm -hmm. He says, we have to pull together to show the government where our true feelings are. And they labeled these people who did not join as no-no boys as unpatriotic. And so all these years, that group of people have held a grudge against the JCL for that fact, that they were labeled unpatriotic by their own people. Mm -hmm. And so one of the resolutions was to acknowledge that those people showed their patriotism in a different way, and that they, they don't 
use the word apologize because that was a big issue to apologize. But they recognized that their right to not join up was their way of expressing their loyalty. And, that was passed by the convention that we recognized that JCL had uh, had expressed certain thoughts at that time mm -hmm. that you know, was negative for them. So that that's been resolved after all these years. Oh my! And they thought that would be a very controversial issue, but the whole convention was very supportive mm -hmm. of having this you know, resolved. Well, when John explained it to us at the museum, um, you were there, it seemed to me that the uh, the fact that I thought it had something also to do with giving up, do you give up your allegiance to the emperor? Well, if you said, I gave up my allegiance, yes, I give up my allegiance, then that meant you had allegiance that in was, the first place. That was part of that, no-no, because no-no mm -hmm. refers to two, two separate questions, questions right. in a thing that they did not. But the main thing was they didn't want to join. Because they didn't feel that they wanted to fight for a country, right. country that they didn't have free rights. Right. Right. Makes sense to me. I'm very um, fascinated, um, in a way, uplifted you It seems as though there's a lot of turning the other cheek. Um, when your children find out about the experiences, um, do they feel that people could have acted differently? I think that's usually one of the first questions the younger generation asks. Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you stand up? And what we try to explain to them is that times were different then. You know, we were just a first gen, first and second generation society. We were just farmers. We had no voice in the government. We had no expertise in leadership or anything like that. So the times were different for that kind of vocalization. You know, today everybody speaks up for the rights of media. But um, that's one of the things you have to impress on people, is that you have to understand the period that all this happened. Now you said, you're talking of the younger people. Where do you fit in? Because you could have wondered that yourself. You weren't in the camps, your parents were, your husband was. You could have said, did you ever wonder these things? Well, for the way I learned how all these events unfolded, I didn't question what they did because I felt that the leaders at that time were doing the best they could for the majority of the people. John has a, an idea that if they had been more outspoken at that time, they wouldn't have gone into camp, which I don't agree with because that's hypothetical. and. Um, I don't think you, it's a relevant thing to bring up, really, but you have to work with the circumstances. And the young leaders at the time were only 19 or 20 years old. They were thrust into this position because all, their, all the other leaders of the community were in separate camps. Well, I think there's a guilt. There's a survivor guilt. There's a, 
the guilt about it. We could have done this, or we could have done that. Oh, there's always you know Monday morning quarterbacks that says you should have done something different. But I read the book uh, in Quest of Justice, the story of the Japanese American Citizens League, and you know Japanese what American Citizens League, and I think when you read that and the what they had to work against, it's a remarkable story of of leadership. And I don't I don't. Um, denounce anything that they had to do at that time because I think they were thinking of the good of all. I think that your entire group is remarkable. I think it's uh, the most dedicated, uh, tremendously giving, I know that people can't be saying some of the things they're thinking and that they don't need to, <laughs> but none of us do, no matter you know what our positions are, uh, who we are. Um, but I think there's a, a, a fire, a dedication, a loveliness, a dignity. <laughs> All those wonderful words, but behind it um, is a tremendous suffering. You were really caught between two worlds, two countries. No, that that wasn't a contention for the Nisei. No, I don't the mean that, I don't mean that that you would want to that be part of Japan at that time. But right before, in California, when there was so much uh, racism or prejudice, um, I think Paul Mariano said that he taught people to learn Japan, Japanese. They wanted their children in case they had to go back. So they weren't, the treatment here wasn't great. The, the farmers were jealous because they took land and made Japanese farmers to, the American farmers were mad they could take the land, Japanese farmers could take the land and put it in to make use of it and there was competition there mm -hmm. economically and um, so they wanted them to learn to keep the language, keep the culture, but also they needed to go back. Then then here they comes a war and they can't, they, they, they don't want to go back there, they're Americans, but they're not getting such good treatment here. So it's, oh yeah, that's what I meant. Mm -hmm. uh, not that there was an allegiance there. Um, it was like maybe you didn't belong anywhere. Yes, yes, I think that was probably the feeling once the war broke out. Right, yeah. right. right. Mm -hmm. And then to come out of it, and then and then they they never found anything. Anybody did anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's an it's an incredible story. I've become extremely proud of my heritage, more so after I read more on this and um, talk more with people. It's, I'm really very proud of the heritage. Before, I used to have this nonchalant attitude about being Japanese-American. Uh, when I was younger, I, I never could understand why I was Japanese, because I didn't think I looked different or act differently. But that's just a childhood uh, thing. But, uh, in my later adult life, I've really become to appreciate my heritage and um, hope it's passed on to my children. You didn't think you looked different? 
No, not when I was little. I looked in that mirror for a long time. I says, now what exactly are Japanese features on this face? And I couldn't find anything. <laughs> so I figured, I don't know what they're talking about. Well, I was fortunate. I didn't have a lot of experiences with prejudice to when I was growing up, so it was an easy childhood. How has John, uh, how has it affected John in his own life? I mean, are there, um, are there any, because coming back and coming out of a, out of a situation like that can be difficult. Um, as much as people on interviewing Holocaust survivors, it was very hard to be free again for some people. Well, I think with his generation, the Nisei coming from camp, your first uh, instinct after camp was survival. So you didn't think about the emotional and psychological effects about being in camp. You just had to survive. You had to get back to school. You had to get back into the work field and just survive. And that's what they had done for uh, you know, 20 years or so after camp. And then after they were sort of settled in and things were going easy, then their children are the ones who raised the issue of free trust and brought it to the, to the forefront. But um, I think the main thing John, one of the main things John got out of his experience was to speak up. Uh, the Nisei generally is known for being a quiet generation. Well, the Issei too. Issei, sure, because of the language problem. But the Nisei were considered quiet because... And because they weren't citizens either, the Issei. Right, right. Allowed to be citizens. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one thing that John learned from his experiences. You have to speak up for yourself. You have to be aware of, of things yourself. Don't depend on other people to watch out for you. Well, he said he learned that from that the Jewish family. That Jewish family, but but I, and it's a sorry uh, side effect is the family because um, I think he missed out on a lot of warm moments from the family. I have a lot of pleasant memories, even though my mother was sick. We had all the traditional uh, events of childhood and things like that. So I. Like what? what oh, holidays and get-togethers with relatives and friends and birthday parties. See, he never had a Christmas tree until we married. He never had a birthday party. After, you know, I don't think they even did it when they were young. They give him an orange or something. That was an extended gift when they were young. And after after the war, he never had a party because he was going to school. He was working. And so he missed out on a lot of those kind of yes, he did. things. And so it's hard for him to relate today with his own family and children why these things are important. He doesn't hold as much emotional bonding for that kind of observances. Well, how, do you, how do you handle that? Well, my parents also were not very big on observing you know, in a big way. I mean, your birthday would come and you'd have you know, a little something. What was, what's a little something? You might have cake and a present. And, but we never had big parties or never observed anniversaries. 
I mean, that was never that big of an issue. You know, mm -hmm. the day would come and you might give a card or something. But, you know, like you hear in other families, they have these big you know, to-dos and things like that. But our family didn't do that. And John grew up not having any of that. Mm -hmm. So together, we sort of had a kind of common observance. We didn't make a big deal. The kids' early birthdays, we made a big deal because we mm -hmm. thought that was new, what you're supposed to do. But as they got older, we didn't put a lot of emphasis on, on birthdays and anniversaries. Uh, we just assumed let the day go by without making a big deal about it. If, you know, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day. We're just not very big on observing this. Big, big, did you give cards or did you sometimes, say Mother's Day? I mean, your children. Sometimes. But I think we, that filtered down to the kids. I mean, when they were little, they would make cards and do mm -hmm. things like that. And we encouraged them to do that more than go out and buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of cute homemade cards right. from that period. And as they grew older, the kids felt sort of uncomfortable having a big birthday party or something. They just didn't like that kind of um, event. So they never had big birthday parties. You know, we'd go out to dinner and have a gift and stuff like that. But very low-key observance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a little bit of what John went through, what I went through, so my kids now. And yet, it could have turned around and been the other way. But because you all didn't have it, you would have wanted your children to have it. Well, I think I might have leaned toward that way myself. I, I knew that John was not comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, Christmas time when everybody's opening up presents, he, he's, after all these years, he's still not comfortable with that whole thing. It's just too much. And too much emphasis is placed on the wrong thing, presence and material things. You know, that's how he observes that kind of holiday. Do you think it makes him sad? Oh, not overly sad, but uh, he would like people's emphasis to be more on the purpose of the day rather than mm -hmm. the results of what you get. Is he religious? He doesn't attend church, but he, I think, within his mm -hmm. heart, he's, he's very mm -hmm. religious. So he's not materialistic? Mm -hmm. He likes to have nice things, mm -hmm. likes to be comfortable, but that's not his prime mm -hmm. objective. I mean, he'll keep things for 30 years. Mm -hmm. He hates to part with anything, but because uh, he feels a certain loyalty for all these things that have lasted so long, and I'm just looking at it in the sense, you know, it's old, it's dirty, it's chipped, and I want to get something new. So we have little uh, conversations about things like that. But, but that could be anywhere in any way. Oh, sure. Um, how about food? Does food come into play much with John, the importance of it or the lack of it, or eat everything on your plate? or? Um, no, he never made that big of an issue when the kids were growing up. He wanted them to, you know, mm -hmm. not be wasteful, but it wasn't a overt thing where he made them eat everything on their plate. Mm -hmm. you know, I, think, I think he would make references if they would leave and waste things. He would always bring up one of his camp experiences or childhood mm -hmm. experiences. And the kids always joke about you know, those kind of stories. So I think it has seeped into their subconscious, mm -hmm. you know, that they were more aware of being without. 
because of his experience. How does he? How did they take? How did he take their joking about his stories? So was it like they're oh dad, there you go again? Yes, that kind of. Thing. And how does he handle that? Well, probably deep down he would like them to have taken it more to heart and to have, you know, uh, been more conscientious of different things that he was more conscientious of. But I think, you know, they would just sort of laugh it off and go on their merry way. Mm -hmm. And I think deep down they probably bothered him a little bit, but you know, he never dwelled on it. Nikki, is he affectionate? Is he... Um, um, able to, does he put his arm around them or, or is he a little bit more withdrawn from them? He, he, he makes a point of doing it because he knows that was lacking in his childhood. And in most Japanese American museums, they're, they're not very affectionate. And he, he's not adroitly about it, but he always tries to hug them and you know, say mm -hmm. something good to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he, that was always very conscious in his mind, you know, to show some affection like that. Um, well, how, how difficult has it been for you? Well, there's a 14 years difference in this, which in itself is an adjustment. Mm -hmm. And there's a generation difference. He's in East Taiwan, he's on site. And he went through camp night. So all those elements come into play sometime or another. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually, I'm, the, I'm of the generation of wanting things new. And I'm not, I don't have the work ethic he grew up with. I was not without. He always tells me, you never were hungry. So you don't appreciate it. I says, well, I can't apologize for that. That's the way I was brought up. Fortunately, my father could put food on the table. I was never without food or anything. So sometimes I get the feeling, you know, he got this superiority attitude because I haven't gone through all the things he's gone through. And, but I think I can appreciate what he's gone through. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's a one-way mirror, but I can see and appreciate maybe what he's gone through, but he doesn't always see how his actions reflect upon it. And those are things we, uh, we're not real good on discussing personal things either. Sort of let things slide under the table and things like that. But, uh, when I first met you and John, and we were sitting around the table, uh, I had, I got an impression that there was a superiority feeling about from you for being a sansei, and he is only a nisei. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, that doesn't mean it's true. Oh, I'm surprised because he always says you're so quiet at any of these And he says you should be more vocal and get your... So I'm surprised that you get that impression because I I'm always think I'm the quiet one. The well, you are the quiet one. You, you are very quiet. But there's many different reasons why people are quiet. But I don't know why you'd get that impression, because I don't see anything about the Sansei that they could hold over the Nisei that they should feel superior well, about myself. It's